It's Saturday. Welcome to the Hayden Collins Radio Program, the Intelligence Syndicate. I'm Hayden Collins, your host. Hey, looking at a lot of posts out there. <laughs> the uh, the press is going upside down and backwards because, believe it or not, they've got nothing to report on in government because there's nothing going on in government. So they're doing entertainment television again, of course, and politics. And so we're going to bypass on all that. You've heard enough of that on the news. We're going to go somewhere else. The Intelligence Syndicate put together this think tank. And we were in-depth studies, deep in-depth studies. And I can guarantee you Google was not used, <laughs> nor was Wikipedia. So after significant research... We had to address when socialism was tried in the United States and how it failed. Yeah, you heard me right. When socialism was tried in the United States and it failed. Now, there there's some individuals out there right now. Oh, it was never tried. And this, that, and this. Oh, what they don't learn in school and common core. And this is this is something that kills me. I'm educating right now. I have students and I'm looking at the manual and the script and the manual and the writ of common wisdom. <laughs> Those of you that follow that one know it's sarcasm at its best. But they have an entire paragraph, and I do mean this, an entire paragraph <laughs> about the first time socialism was tried in the United States. So I look at that and I go, oh my gosh, I spent weeks on this. We, we studied this for weeks in the 7th grade or 8th grade, whatever it was. We did reports. We studied what went wrong. And this was before the Department of Education. Understand, I went through school before the Department of Education. So I actually got a competitive education. And keep in mind, when we had 50 states doing 50 different levels of education competing against each other, we had a higher education standard then than we do now with all of them under one, you know, department and, oh, let's, you know, use standardized testing or whatever the case may be. Now we're 17th in the world. We were never, oh dear God, we would never accept that during my time period. Heads would roll. However, this wonderful textbook that we have that we're studying that shows a full paragraph, we went to, not the library, but we went to my library, my home library, where I keep a selection of books around for just such an occasion. Because history writes itself out of things it doesn't like. And people write history a different way as the years go on to provide for political circumstances and political correctness. So once you see that trend, it's highly likely that you should run out and buy every old encyclopedia you can put your hands on before political correctness came around. Because I pulled up the encyclopedia and there are 21 pages of the Mayflower and the Mayflower Compact. Ah, some light bulbs just went off out there. 
So let me describe this. I'm not, I'm not going to go through the whole Mayflower story because there's a paragraph on that. Those of you that were educated know that there was some kind of a wooden ship that came over from England to get away from England for some reason that, you know, started some colony that, you know, whatever. Ah, oh, where's my cell phone? Nonetheless, <laughs> let me give you some details here. Just, just want to throw some details at you. There were 41 male passengers of head of families, 15 male servants. We have the names of each and every one of those on the manifest. That documentation was saved. And this is from 1624. You know, I don't even know where to go with this. <laughs> The, the ship dropped anchor in Cape Cod, which is now known as uh, Provincetown, Provincetown Harbor. It's at Cape Point. And I guess, you know, you want to call it Plymouth Harbor or whatever. They used to call it Plymouth Rock. Ah, oh, you know, whatever the case may be. And when they landed, or before they landed, they had to have a conversation. And, and the conversation was, you know, we, we're, we've got to form our own government. We've got to form our own position on how we're going to take care of ourselves. You know, we can't just come out here and be lawless and so on and so forth. So they formed the first socialist enterprise inside the United States, well, now the United States. And, and for those of you out there that say, oh, you know, other countries have done it wrong and so on and so forth, I, I want to go through the hit parade for you here. Every available resource in the United States was untouched. Every available opportunity in the United States was untouched. There was no government. There was no opposition. There was no opposition to their attempt at socialism. There was, there was no, <laughs> there was not a negative individual on board. It was all socialism. Yay. Now, I'm going to read this, and it's a little rough to get through. And it's not very long, but it's a little rough to get through, okay? But basically, it, it's committing to each other to share everything, to work everything together, so they could survive. Now I'm not going to ruin the story for you, but but let me let me read this. This is the Mayflower Compact. Okay. Uh, In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God and of Great Britain. France and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc. They actually put etc. on there. <laughs> Have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith in honor of our king, country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually 
in the presence of God and of another covenant, and by combined ourselves together in civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation. And furthermore, of the ends of aforesaid, and by the virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have here unto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of our reign of our Sovereign Lord, King James of England, France and Ireland, and the 18th and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini. Domini. Oh, okay. 1620. All right. So basically, <laughs> basically, uh, submission. Um, we will do anything we all agree on. Uh, we'll all vote on it and majority rule, so it's mob rule. And not only is it mob rule, it is, you know, by the grace of God, mob rule. So you have religion behind it, too. Uh, so everything that's, you know, together there, uh, they've committed their families. Now, the most unique thing about this, uh, which is, uh, boy, this really does show the sign of the times, of course. But from what I can read here and what I can see, the... 15 male servants signed the document as well. Now, I did a little bit of research trying to pull together some information. I actually did some uh, journalistic papers and I pulled up something to the Library of Congress. But apparently, this was the first attempt. Now, think about it. The, the servants are not necessarily slaves, uh, but they're, they're servants to the individuals they brought over, okay? Indentured servitude, whatever the case may be. But they signed this document as equals. That's the way it looks. And the male signs the document. No children, no women sign that document. Now, let, let's discuss how this failed. And it, it failed miserably. Um, it failed so bad. <laughs> but it didn't fail for any of the reasons that you would hear on entertainment television today or or any young individual going oh we've, we've got to do this socialism thing it works it's this that and the other and blah 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 no we're watching it fail around the world uh, massive debt and things going really really in fact we had it under the Obama administration and we were going that way and the unemployment was high everything was high you know here's an interesting fact for you just so you can laugh a little bit you know Spain Spain had an unemployment rate, what was it, God, in the 30s maybe, you know? Their government has been shut down for almost a year. The unemployment rate is down to 17%, and their GDP is up without government. <clears throat> just just kind of want to put that out there. They're, 
their economy is doing better without the socialist government being involved. I think those that are in their stalemate in Spain are in stalemate on purpose, trying to shut down the absolutes of the socialist government. Just so... Uh, <laughs> just so they can get a taste of what it was like prior to World War II, I guess. I don't know. Um, all right, so let's go back to the failures that took place. You know, you got to imagine you're getting off the ship. You just signed this compact. I mean, you got basically, you know, 50 families, 55 families, somewhere in there. So that means effectively your, your first season on the ground, you got a lot of trees to cut because you've got to do... 55 homes before winter gets there and you've only got a few months to do this so it's a very big construction effort uh you got to chop enough firewood to make sure that you know you survive the winter you got to have heat you got to have hunting parties you know you have to go out and get food because you're obviously not going to plant food the first year you're there so you got to live off the land you're you're basically hunter gatherers at that moment socialist hunter and gatherers so Things didn't go all too well with uh, with this little scenario. And they didn't get enough cabins built. And there was some overcrowding. Sanitary things were obviously not addressed. Uh, food was scarce. Hunting didn't go as well as they thought it would, I guess. Uh, things of that nature. So... Within the first full year, there was a significant downgrade in what was taking place, personnel-wise and housing-wise and everything. But, but they're good socialists. So, it, it, boy, how do you best describe this? The first socialist attempt inside the United States failed so bad that half of the population of that group died before they realized how bad it was. They got foreign aid from a foreign nation uh, with emergency supplies to, to keep them alive. To, to keep the colony alive. They, they negotiated and uh, <laughs> got aid. And of course, we all know history after that. And well, some of us do that don't read the paragraph that's in the common manuals. They have to do a little bit of research. Uh, educational journals are actually pretty good at the university level if you're going to do some research out there and educate yourself. Because I know I have a lot of homeschoolers that listen to the show. But think, think, think about this for a moment. The information is just not in the book. You've got to do some additional research. So, oh yeah, yeah, the foreign nation. <laughs> Okay, so the foreign nation that bailed them out were the Native Americans, the Indians. The foreign nation that provided aid was the Indians. And apparently it was because the Great Spirit did not want to see these people die and starve. I, who knows? But the whole socialist program inside the United States died and starved to death had to receive foreign aid uh, from a nation and actually you want to say for lack of a better term actually funding if you want to look at it that way even though there were no funds or anything like that but it was an exchange of goods uh, there were trades that took place after that there was a relationship that was built that actually you know brought survival to that group of individuals that tried bringing socialism to the United States. 
Now, that's just a tad bit of history there. You know, there's not a way that they could say, hey, they all landed and went out and built their own cabins and only one or two families survived. I don't know if the odds would have been better. I don't know if the odds would have been worse. But I do know this. If a man was responsible for his own family and didn't rely on government to house his family, that cabin would have been built. <laughs> as much wood as he can grab would have been split. And by God, when it came hunting time, he was out hunting. And, you know, if Mama was going to see to it. So, there's, you know, there's a direct correlation to a man providing for his family and a government providing for the family. Now, what happened after this? Now, historically, you know, you have to read a little bit and you have to look at what the next ships did when they showed up and things of that nature. But this, th it was only tried once. It wasn't tried with every colony. It didn't, they didn't even think about it. It was not tried with every colony. It was tried once. <laughs> the failure got around real quick. Nobody else tried it. Nobody else was even interested in trying it. And pretty much every colony after that, you know, started developing. Now, there were failed colonies, and there were colonies that succeeded, and so on and so forth, but a majority of them succeeded, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Think about it like this. It was so bad. It, it was so bad that... If it wasn't for the Native Americans, it would be like another lost colony in history. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. All right, uh, a couple of things. I want to make some notes here. Interns, we do a roundtable. And if you'd like to be a part of the roundtable to discuss things like this, to be a part of the think tank of the Intelligence Syndicate, when we actually get together and do these things, you need to email Hayden at HaydenCollins.org. I will send you to the lead intern. Uh, we will come back and say, hey, you're in or you're out, but we're specifically looking for high school students or college students. Now, the objective of this, the whole objective of the program here, if you're interested in marketing, you're interested in sales, you're interested in web design, IT, on-air personality, production, engineering, then, then you want to spend some time with us because we will give you a very nice reference list. Every show that you're on, you're on credits, credits roll. As these credits produce themselves and your name's on it, you're able to mark it on your resume for being a part of a nationwide show that's been around for almost a decade now. And we've had a pretty good history. Uh, one of the interns is working for the Congress in Europe and calls in every now and then. Uh, one of the past interns is now working for a Fox News affiliate in Kentucky, and, you know, there's some sizable amount of money she's bringing in there. Another one went to Washington, D.C. He's making money. Uh, well, actually, two went to Washington, D.C. They're both making money, he, him and her. So, you know, it puts something on your resume other than the fact that you went to school. Hi, I went to school. Here's my resume. No, 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 no. I actually, while I was in school, I interned with a radio program. I was an on-air personality. I did production. These are all the things that I did. And here's the resume. Here's a reference letter from the show. And we kind of help out. So if you're interested in that line of, op, line of work and you want to take this opportunity, again, just email Hayden at HaydenCollins.org. Send it out to us. And uh, you'll get interviewed for the Intelligence Syndicate. <laughs> you'll be thrown into the think tanks. And you'll have to come up with things like, oh my gosh, wait a second, the Mayflower Compact? 
Holy cats, that was our first attempt at socialism. And wait, there's only a paragraph in the common book for common core about this whole thing? No wonder they're trying to hide it. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, and there's some guidelines here. Uh, the presidential election is coming up. And the presidential election, <laughs> I'll tell you what we did last time. There were 17 candidates for the Republicans when they started, went to 16, so on and so forth. We had, we had 12 interns with us. So each intern, we put a name in a jar, and the intern had to pull the name out of the jar, and that is the presidential candidate they had to follow. Now, there were three Democratic candidates, so that was easy to follow. Actually, what had happened was two of the Democratic um, members of the show decided to follow those three. They said they would follow the Democratic side. And the, the Libertarians and the Conservatives and the Republicans divided up and covered the Republican side. Now, the trick to this game is, oh, and it's a game. Whatever name you draw, you have to follow that individual until they drop out or until they win. If your individual drops out, you, as an intern, have to endorse and join one of the individuals that are left. You would be so surprised of the alliances that were built inside the intelligence syndicate from candidates that were left over and, and candidates that were supported and not supported. And the young lady, and she's in college, she, she's graduating, so she hasn't been with the show now for a year because she got really busy in the last two years. Uh, she had Donald Trump. She did not like him at the beginning, hated him at the beginning. And then before, even before the um, end of the election, we go, oh my God, this guy's a genius. I love him. And now she's really loving him because as she graduates college, she's graduating college in the best economy this country has seen in decades. And she has a way better opportunity at success for a job with money than I ever had when I graduated because I did not graduate into an economy this good. I've had to live through some terrible economies. The fortunate thing for me is if, if things stay this good for maybe the next 15 or 20 years, I'll be able to retire in this kind of economy and enjoy a very good retirement, probably better than previous individuals under other conditions. Hmm. All right, we come back from the break. The twins have lined up, and uh, we'll see what they have to say this week. And then keep in mind, as soon as we get enough interns, we do the roundtable. See you after the break. See you after the break. I'm Allie. We're the Rannick Twins, and this is Oops, I Arted. Today we're going to be covering some theories. Get it? Theories. I don't get it. All right. <laughs> we're going to talk about Mr. Bingo and the theories behind his ear. Isn't this one of the better known stories of the art world? Absolutely. It's arguably the most famous story in our history, mostly because of that painting he did, that self-portrait of him after the fact. Well, I, I believe there are a couple self-portraits of him with a bandage on his ear. Alright, so we're going to be talking about some theories behind the infamous ear and whether or not he did it himself or if there was some events leading up to it. Yeah, I'm sure that some of the listeners learned about Vincent in elementary school, middle school, or high school, learning that he did cut his ear off, but not exactly how. I think that there's a lot of drama around the story, you know, how telephone works, where he said, she said, and then the whole story's changed. I think that what we learn now is a dramatized version of Van Gogh's ear. Yeah, well, I mean, it did happen in the 1800s, so it's kind of had some time to evolve. So when I was doing my research, I found a lot of competing theories. I understand that you have found what some would say is closest to the truth. Yeah, basically what I did, just to clear it up, is I looked at probably 12 different sources 
and kind of compiled all of the similar facts to piece the story together. So you cross-referenced a lot. Yes, absolutely. That is a great research tactic. So I just kind of looked up, did Vincent Van Gogh cut off his ear? <laughs> so I found the weird blog forum, he said, she said, Reddit type of deal. Yes. The first thing I heard was a fit of lunacy. I think it should be noted that Vincent was a known absence user. Not only was there alcohol involved, but also a slightly hallucinogenic. Or Paul is the culprit. Paul Gauguin was an artist that lived with Vincent Van Gogh in the Yellow House in France. Yes, yeah, that's where the bedroom yes, is at. Yes, that's the famous room painting that we see and know about. I also believe that there are a couple paintings of Paul Gauguin's chair as yes. well as Van Gogh's chair. They are two very different personalities. They didn't realize that until they moved in together. You never do, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last one is my favorite, which is why I saved it for last. I haven't heard this theory yet either. This is fresh. Yeah, I wanted to save it. You know, I wanted this to be the first time this theory has been laid upon your ears. There's a psychology theory that Vincent Van Gogh cut off his ear in a desire to be coddled by his mother. Him and his mother didn't have a great relationship growing up. Vincent Van Gogh was seen as kind of a bad boy doing art. Uh, he was doing different art. It wasn't really classical. There was a big classical movement. You didn't go to school to learn how to draw the way Vincent Van Gogh did. Getting into the details, psychologists believe that he cut his ear off from a desire to be perceived more positively by his mother. And I found that quote from WilliamRunyon.com. It was like a psychologist article. That's really interesting. So, in the details, why did he cut his ear off, get approval from his mother? That doesn't really make any sense. The ear is perceived as a protuberance. It means something that sticks out from the body, and those in the unconscious mind are considered masculine. I'm sure you could put together why. <laughs> Psychologists believe that he cut off his ear and then gave it to the lady, we'll call her, Rachel, and it's supposed Rachel. to show that he hopped. I think that he just did it for attention. <laughs> That's a shorthand of what you just said. He did it so his mom would pay more attention to him. Also, I want to touch on the lady. <laughs> See, I didn't know what to call her. So like I said, I googled, did Vincent Van Gogh cut his ear off? Well, okay, so what's the common thought that people go? That he cut his ear off and he gave it to a prostitute, right? Yes. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll get into that on my theory. So the psychology behind this was in a book literally called Stranger on Earth, a psychological biography of Vincent Van Gogh. I wish that I could afford all of the books about Van Gogh and his life. I was trying to find some to read before this, but honestly, I can't drop $40 on a book right now. <laughs> Agreed. I was just surprised that there was even a book on something so specific as his psychological life. Absolutely. They have a book on only the year that he spent in the asylum. Wow. The year. So yeah, those are the eerie. Short and simple, Vincent Van Gogh cut his ear off and gave it to a prostitute. So that's what a lot of people think, and that's what I've heard from a lot of people, but I have a differing view on it. I think that there are several different, very plausible theories, so let's just get started. It was a cold day in Arles, France on December 23rd in 1888 when it is reported that Paul Gauguin and Vincent Van Gogh were having a bit of, a, I guess you could call it an altercation. A scat. Outside of the yellow house. It's been reported in both Paul Gauguin's journal as well as some of Vincent's letters that neither of them were really easy to live with. I'm pretty sure Vincent was reported of being very erratic because of his mental health, but also dirty, rude, sad, not really 
definitely the most fun guy to be around. So basically, Vincent was threatening Paul with a razor blade outside of the house. And this is where the story gets sticky because some people think that Paul cut off Vincent's ear. Yeah, they think Paul attacked Vincent. Yes. People also think that Vincent, because he realized he couldn't attack Paul, turned the razor blade on himself in a fit of self-destruction and cut his own ear off. You know how an argument gets too heated and you're like, well, you know what? I'm just going to cut my ear off. So he turned the razor on himself. It's speculated that he looked in the mirror while doing it and cut. And what I like to refer to as a silent scream is what people call it. It's also speculated that Vincent may have cut his ear off due to audio hallucinations. Just look up the wind in France. Look up some stories about how it's actually driven people insane. So do you think maybe the absence on top of, like, the crazy wind has really just bit him over? Vincent was horribly plagued with mental illness at a time where people had no clue what was going on. Back when bloodletting was in. Oh, we'll just drill a hole in your skull. (laughs) It'll relieve some of the pressure. And I've read that on a couple of different occasions, but there was recently a doctor's report found by Dr. Felix Ray that Vincent cut off his entire ear, leaving only the partial lobe left, the part where you put an earring in. So the lobe was the only thing yes. left. It yes. wasn't the only part that got cut off. I have this great quote from Felix Ray that I found on the Van Gogh Museum website about Felix seeing him right after he cut off his ear. And he said, when I tried to get him to talk about the motive that drove him to cut off his ear, he replied that it was a purely personal matter. <laughs> it's personal, Doc. Look, all you can do is say, okay, that's fine. Whatever, dude. So Vincent cut his ear off. He wrapped it up in some parchment, and he dropped it off at the brothel. Cut quite a yes. scene. Well, Gabrielle Berlatier. Why do they call her Rachel? I have no clue. Maybe that was her name at the brothel or something like that, but I read on a couple websites that Gabrielle Berlatier was a maid on a farm and she was recently ravaged by a rabid dog and had to undergo treatment at the hospital and it was putting her family in serious debt. So she picked up a job as as a maid. Very important to note that because she was actually only 19 years old. She was too young to actually be a prostitute, which I think is important to note that you had to be 21 to be a prostitute in 1888. They did not make exceptions for that. How the times have changed. So I think that she cleaned the brothel, which is maybe a worse job. Generalized delirium. What does that even mean in today's standards? <laughs> he 
diagnosed with schizophrenia Absolutely. today. To me, if you want my opinion on it, which you probably don't, <laughs> I think that he cut his ear off the tired of hallucinating. And then his own internal demons, I would probably try to cut my ear off too to maybe soothe some of the pain. He was at a point where he felt like that was the only thing that he could do. Well, it seemed to really inspire a lot of his work. Painting 142 paintings, there's only 365 days in a year, <laughs> so that's got to be a painting every, every other two day. days. This Asylum was different in the sense that they sought therapy through art. Oh, yeah. So this is an, an early form of art therapy. Yes. This asylum was actually it was going through a huge reform when Vincent became a patient there because of a failing grade. So they huh. completely changed all of their stuff and started allowing people to express themselves through art and music. Also, I want to note that on the same day that Vincent cut his ear off was also the day that. Bingo sent his brother, Theo, a congratulations telegraph for his engagement. And it's also suspected that Vincent Bingo was acting so radically that day because Theo supported Vincent financially. And I read that Theo getting engaged meant that Theo wasn't going to be able to devote as much time to Vincent as yes. he was previously doing. Yes. I think that when you're upset, you tend to act erratically. With emotion. Absolutely. Just like the foot shooting party and Dwayne passing away, he passed away a year later to the day that his best friend Barry passed away on a motorcycle. And I think that it's important to note that when you're experiencing emotion so strongly that you hardly even really think about what exactly is going on. A Claude Monet quote, I'm not going to get it completely right, but it said, he said, I don't understand how somebody can love flowers and lighting and shading so much and still be so terribly sad. It is his whole entire story. I would suggest if any of you guys feel interested in what we're talking about, to go and read more about Van Gogh's story because it really is. Kind of sad, but there's also very interesting. You're talking about how sad Van Gogh is. His last words translated to English because I don't speak French. His last words were, the sadness will last forever. Entire life was filled with inconveniences of sadness. And it's difficult for me to understand because people talk about Vincent Van Gogh like, oh, well, he's famous now, but he sold one painting in his entire life. You know, he was he's... a starving artist. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that was the theory. The eerie. Hopefully we've set some stories straight that Vincent Van Gogh did not cut his ear off and give it to a prostitute, but it was actually a lot more than that. Next week, we're going to be talking about Mary Shelley. One of my favorite stories in the writing world. Yeah, and if you don't know already, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, it's a heads up. We will be back next week with a new episode of Oops, I Arted. Hope y'all have a good week. Thank you for listening to the Hayden Collins Radio Program and the Intelligence Syndicate. And for those of you that follow the show throughout the years, know that I close the ending of the show with Be About It.